This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Kim, and today's episode is on a major city that I think when everyone visits Germany, everyone ends up going to the city. It's known to be very expensive, very bougie, but very nice. You know, the Alps, the Bavarian Alps is nearby. The Black Forest is nearby. It's a it's a part of Germany that we all know, and that's and that's Munich. In every country, you will have a section of it of that country that will be proudly displaying their unique culture and history, notably highlighting its uniqueness in comparison to the rest of the country. So in other words, there's a section of within that country that will emphasize and let you know that they are different and unique from the rest of mainstream society or or the rest of the country, if you will. The Bavarians are definitely one of those. Whether that's the Basque region in Spain or Texas in USA, every country has got a self-proclaimed cultural unicorn. In this case, the Free State of Bavaria, which is the legitimate title of the region state of Bavaria, is one of those unique places. Free State of Bavaria sounds like one of those like Game of Thrones cities in the other continent. You know, the Free City of Bravos or the Free City of Marine. And then you have here the Free State of Bavaria. Same vibes. Although I looked it up, apparently in terms of function, it's the same as any other regular state. I think there's just like one or two things that are unique to the to the Bavarian state that they can do. And that's why they can call themselves the Free State of Bavaria. It's more like one of those weird political things. But anyway, Munich is its capital. And given the fact that Munich is one of the venues of Euro 2020, it's also sort of, not sort of, Munich is definitely the home of some of the best, if not the best German football has to offer. And... All of that takes place in the venue of Allianz Arena. So when I mean Allianz Marine Arena, another name comes to mind. Just saying Munich should already conjure up one club name and their colors and their fans and, and everything they're about. And that's Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich is looking at or watching Bayern Munich play and seeing their performances, seeing their success almost has a direct correlation of how well Germany will do. If you look at the German roster, a core of the team are Bayern Munich players. You know, I think the year when they won the World Cup 2014, if you look at all the core players, they all play for Bayern Munich. Mario Goetze, although from Borussia Dortmund, he ended up going to Bayern Munich. Thomas Müller, Manuel Neuer, Bastian Schweinsteiger, Philipp Lahm, Jerome Boateng, Miroslav Klose... Just that's already seven players, and they're all pretty much starters for the German national team. So that's seven out of 11. And then there was also like, wait, was Mesut Ozil in 2014? I don't think he was. I don't remember. Oh, that's a great question. Was he there in 2014? He definitely was there. Anyway, probably on, I think he was on the bench most of the time. So today's episode is obviously on Munich and what Munich means, not just to German football, but what it means to even global and European football and what their presence and what their history influences the game itself. Unfortunately, at this point in the Euro 2020, Germany was knocked out by England. I'll get to that towards the end of the episode or get to that a little later. But that doesn't change the fact that Munich or Bayern Munich in this case has a way of producing players that uh, they just have a way of producing a good crop of players. If they don't produce, they can scout the next best thing and they have and they continue. But before we jump into Bayern Munich, I want to talk about the Allianz Arena just for a bit and how 
that is deeply connected to Bayern Munich. Well, deeply, but actually, yeah, it's deeply connected to Bayern Munich. Of course it is. So the Allianz Arena, the stadium opened in 2005 and it can hold up to 71,000 people. The stadium is, is, is beautiful. It's, if you look at it, it's a sleek white exterior. The entire exterior panels are also LED lighting. I think it's LED, but anyway, that's all lighting. So they can, so for game day for Bayern Munich, the entire stadium, which is the original color is white, can be turned into red for Bayern Munich. And during the Euros, they lit up the, the gay pride colors on the stadium just to show support for i think it was for gay pride month and the uefa actually told them to turn off those lights because uh, displaying gay flag is a political statement and they don't want political statements in football which i'm like but anyway it's, it's stupid it doesn't make sense the only reason why it's political statements because hungary doesn't view because hungary makes homosexuality a political issue and not a social issue and thereby uefa complying to or complying with hungary and you know saying don't put gay pride colors cuts as a political statement, which is ridiculous. It's it's completely stupid by UEFA. And I really wish that these major organizations with that much money and influence like FIFA and UEFA who say that the game is for everyone and for anyone. And yet they don't want to do this and they were scared of losing Hungary. First off, it's fucking Hungary. How much influence does Hungary have in UEFA? Seriously. I mean, I show the respect that it deserved in the Budapest episode, but like, let's be honest. How much influence does Hungary have? And I don't understand... Why UEFA is telling the Germans not to display gay colors or gay, gay pride colors when they're the most influential, if not, they're among the most influential footballing nations in the world. Anyway, it's just all of it's stupid. But let's get back into Allianz Arena. So this stadium, <laughs> Allianz Arena, is beautiful. At its time, it was very futuristic. Even to this day, it looks still very futuristic. The stadium in my opinion, it's a cathedral of German football. It's, it's, you see it, you know it, it's identifiable. But what makes a stadium special is not only for the grandiose and sleek modern design, but for the club that calls it home, and that's Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich is not just a football club, it's an institution. Bayern Munich is a representation and is, not a representation, but is the crown jewel of German soccer. When you look into German soccer or German football, the first team that pops to mind is Bayern Munich. Which, fun fact, FC Bayern München, which is how it's said in German or Bavarian, translates to Bavarian Munich or Munich Bavarians. It's kind of a similar name structure as, let's say, the Montreal Canadiens. City name plus the cultural group. So in this case, city name Munich and the Bavarians. So let's talk a bit about Bayern Munich. I, there, in every country, there's a club that will be sort of the heartbeat of the national football team. I think in the last episode at Amsterdam, I was pretty much saying Ajax is sort of that for the Netherlands. And the only because Ajax constantly produces amazing players and you can trust Ajax in fielding at least half of the Dutch national team or producing half the Dutch national team. And the same thing with uh, Germany. In Germany, there's a lot of great clubs like like Bayer Leverkusen, Hamburg, well, when they were good, Schalke, well, when they were good, (laughs) Borussia Dortmund, Besides, uh, Frankfurt was is pretty solid, uh, kind of ish, and then FC Pauli, not in the not in Bundesliga, but they're I love what they're about. That's probably another time. That's on my bucket list of traveling to watching FC Pauli game. But Bayern Munich is, as referred to in Germany, as the Hollywood team, they're the Hollywood club, and the reason why they're called the Hollywood club, it has a lot to do with their um, their scouting ability and also their. They've been successful, like constantly successful since the 70s. So they have a lot of money to begin with. So they could buy big name players if they wanted to. But what makes them great is 
they listen to the fans first. That's what I love about Bayern Munich. They care a lot about the fans. They care so much about the fans that Bayern Munich was not involved in the European Super League discussion, which for those who don't know, the European Super League, as I've mentioned in the last episode in Amsterdam, is all the top clubs making their own Champions League and their own league separate from everyone else. So it's just a big money league just to make more money. That's really what the European Super League is. And Bayern Munich was not involved because they knew that the ticket prices will elevate and the fans would not be down for that. I mean, that's one of many reasons. But the fact that you have a major club that I call an institution, and it really is an institution, listen to their fans. Ah, that's great because you don't see enough of that anymore. But anyway, as I was saying, the reason why they call uh, Hollywood is the reason why they call FC Hollywood or whatever is because they always buy the best German talents from other clubs within the country. That's what Bayern Munich does best is that they'll Manuel Neuer, for example, he was not produced in Munich, but he was originally from Schalke and he, you know, Bayern Munich bought Manuel Neuer, I think in his early 20s, and it's paid dividends for them. Same with Mario Goza, he would and Lewandowski. They were both in Borussia Dortmund, and then Bayern Munich bought them. Mario Goza went back to Dortmund, but that's what happens. They always buy the best talents. Uh, same with Goretzka. I think he was Bayer Leverkusen, I think, and they, then Bayern Munich went out and bought him. That's just what they do. And then if they if they're not buying the next best young German talent that isn't produced in Munich, then they are going abroad and going to markets that no one is looking at. David Alaba, he's Austrian. But he's arguably the only good Austrian player. I mean, there's other great players like Arnautovic. He's not bad. But before we even knew about how good Austria was, we knew Dave, David Alaba. Another great example is that they Bayern Munich is like the only European team to have signed two Canadian players and make them stars. Owen Hargreaves being the first one. Granted, he was born in Nova Scotia and his parents are English. And he played soccer in Calgary for a while. So the guy's like been across Canada. But Owen Hargreaves ended up playing for England instead of Canada. Because at the time, in like the early 2000s, who's going to play for Canada if you have the chance to play for England? And today, we have a new Canadian in Bayern Munich, Alfonso Davies. He's only like 21, 22, already won the Champions League at 19. Considered already like a, an amazing rookie, if not the next best left back. But he can also play left wing and right wing. He's, he's, he's great. Alfonso Davies is a tremendous talent. And he's sort of spearheaded this current Canadian generation that seems we're seeing Canada seems to be headed to a golden generation, and Alfonso Davies seems to be the spearhead of that. And we have to thank Bayern Munich because Bayern Munich acquiring a Canadian player from Vancouver. Well, he's originally from Edmonton. I mean, we know the story. He's a refugee from um, from Liberia via Ghana. Then you know uh, him and his family settling in Edmonton, and then. Yada, 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 plays for Vancouver, gets a pro contract at 15, then Bayern Munich buys him at 17 or 18 years old. And because Bayern Munich bought this Canadian player and seeing how much of a talent he is, other clubs are now scouting Canada and starting to realize there's a lot of talent in Canada that we haven't been looking. And we have to thank Bayern Munich for that as Canadians. I can go on talking about Bayern Munich, how great they are. They're a major club, but I want to get to the German national team. Actually, right before I get to the German national team, let's talk. I want to talk about this one big game that happened at Allianz Arena. And that was the Italy defeating Belgium 2-1. If you watch that game, it was incredible. A lot of fun. The first half, Belgium was horrible. Italy was amazing, perfect. Didn't miss, miss a beat. Belgium came back in the second half. They got, a, they got an equalizing penalty before the first half, before the end of the first half. And then into the second half, the you know, Italians scored again. And the Belgians sort of struggled. 
to get back into the game, but they were pushing. And I think with Belgium, the problem they faced was not just injuries because Eden Hazard was uh, is injured, and also Kevin De Bruyne just came back from injury, so he's a little rusty. Belgium just their defense wasn't good enough. That's all it was. That's what I saw. Belgium's defense just wasn't good enough, and and Italy was calm under pressure and. They were just so much fun to watch. But Belgium played their hearts out. It was actually an incredibly entertaining game. And I'm happy that happened in Allianz Arena because a lot of great games have happened in Allianz Arena. Another good example is the Champions League final, Chelsea versus Bayern Munich. I remember watching that and Drogba was... Oh, Drogba was incredible that day. If there's any... As a matter of fact, if there's something to watch about that, that moment of the Champions League or if you want to talk about German football in the Allianz Arena, I strongly suggest you watch... Amazon Prime. It's called This Is Football. There's, a, I think, the third or fourth episode is about chance and how chance and luck influences soccer and why that's a major component of soccer and how like, what the Germans do to deal with that luck and chance. It's very fascinating. Uh, and this is where I get into more to uh, German football is one style of German football that everyone knows and agrees is that they're amazing tacticians. They're good on tactics. They're good on planning plays. And what makes German football great, which is equal to Bayern Munich, is there's no superstars. I just said that Bayern Munich has a tendency buying hot young prospects and big name, not necessarily big name players, but just exciting young players that are popular within Germany. They're called, a, Bayern Munich's called Hollywood because they have money. But the one thing that Bayern Munich and the German national team sort of have in common is that there's no real superstars that dominate the team. Not like Christian, not the same way how Cristiano Ronaldo dominates his presence dominates Real Madrid his presence dominates Juventus his presence dominates the Portuguese national team whereas in German football they don't like that they don't want that because it no longer becomes about the team it becomes about this individual that we need to serve and Bayern Munich and and, and the German national team do that very well they have a lot of they have a lot of celebrities on the team for sure but they have a good way within the culture of the team to make it about the team I guess in a similar similar to Denmark's uh, in the first episode, similar to the Denmark's uh, law of Yante, which is you, not one person should ever think they're better than others. We're all in this together. It's we're collective. We're a unit. And the way the Germans do that is trying to eliminate, try to control every single outcome and minimize unpredictability. A lot of unpredictability happens with superstar players because well, that's what makes them superstars is that they could change the game out of nowhere what makes Messi amazing is that he could do amazing magical things without you anticipating it even if you're anticipating it he's gonna it's gonna happen when you least expect it and that's kind of what makes Messi great is because defenders aren't expecting it when he does these crazy things and if they are expecting it they just can't deal with it same with Ronaldo but that's those are things those are elements of game those are people who make the game unpredictable because you can't really predict what Neymar would do you know, it, it, you know he'll dribble, but you don't know how he'll dribble. You don't know how he'll dribble you out. You you won't even know if he'll give an amazing cross or not. That's why I love the game because it's unpredictable. And the Germans, what makes the Germans fun is that they're trying to control that element. I mean, he, another great example of Germans being very good at controlling the elements or controlling the element of unpredictability is being very good at penalties. So in this Euros, the Germans are knocked out by England. Their biggest fear, which is I call a soccer trauma, if you will, the English, the last thing they want to do is go to penalties versus the Germans because the English have a reputation of always choking and losing to penalties versus the Germans. Because the Germans, what they do is, 
here's the thing with penalties. There's a 70% chance of you scoring a penalty. That's a very high chance. That pretty much means you are going to score. But that 30% of missing increases based on your mental state. So you can have the greatest technique. You could be uh, you could be scoring goals, 30 goals a season. But if you are nervous under pressure and you crack under pressure easily, penalties are not for you. Because penalties is more of a mental game than it is a physical game. Some people say you just got to hit the ball hard. I mean, you can say this at the amateur level for sure. If you just hit the ball hard, it's going to go in because people's reactions aren't as fast as a pro level. But even at the professional level, hitting the ball hard is not always enough. If anything, the penalty shootout between Italy and Spain, like Thiago's uh, penalty against Italy, and then also Jorginho's winning penalty against Spain, those penalties were just really not even hard shots. They were just well-placed shots with some strength. But it was all about the technique and being cool under pressure. And the Germans are very, very good at that. The mental strength of Germans is second to none. They definitely focus more on being efficient and practical as opposed to being flary and emotional and, and so on. You know, that's their style. Not to say that they're not to say that the Germans are boring to watch. They're actually a lot of fun to watch because a lot of those German players are also incredible dribblers because they all grew up playing cage soccer in Berlin, you know? So that's that adds another element to the game is that you have people who play with zero nonsense, but when they decide to to mess about and dribble, you're going to see a show. Uh, this is why I love German football because it's the best of both worlds. And I, going back to that uh, This Is Football show on Amazon Prime, I think it gives you a really good understanding or a great insight into what German football is like and how they play. And uh, the way they construct the story about David and Goliath situations like Frankfurt beating Munich or Chelsea beating Munich because Munich is the institutional powerhouse and they talk about how luck in gets involved in all that. And just like, um, just like the Netherlands where they were orange but the color of the flag is different, Germany's colors are white and black. Whereas their flag is obviously black, red, and yellow. So why are they wearing white and black? It turns out, this is what I just learned actually. It's based on the old North Prussian flag. Which is black bars. One on the top, one on the bottom of the flag. Middle section of flag, it's all, a, it's all horizontal. The middle section of flag is white. And then they have the crest, the Prussian crest on the flag. So... German football essentially took the old North Prussian flag and they used that as their uniform. Italy does something similar as well. I'll get to Italy in the next episode or in the penultimate episode, if you will. So that's a little fun fact why they wear white and black. But also, there's something you have to know. They've won four World Cups, but three of those four World Cups were won by West Germany. So if, for those who don't know the history, German football history has a lot of uh, holes in it. And some of you is like, why is there a lot of holes? Well, because of World War One and World War Two, for very obvious reasons why they had to kind of stop playing soccer for a minute. And long story short, after the Second World War, Germany, the country itself was split uh, between uh, East and West Germany. So East Germany belonging to the Russians and West Germany belonging to the Allied Democratic Powers like Great Britain, United States, France, uh, NATO, essentially or the early variation of of NATO. And also, this is new. This I didn't know. I knew there was always the East and West Germany, but there was also a third German country or section that also had its own team called Saarland, which borders with the with the with France. 
but it was under French control, but it was never absorbed into the French Republic. So it was sort of like the French were holding on to it until the Germans, I guess, get their act together or something like that. I don't know. I didn't really look much much into it. But the point is that the Germ there was three separate German national teams, essentially. East Germany, West Germany, and Saarland. So imagine if Korea has technically two national teams, North Korea and South Korea, because Koreans, we still see each other as one people. We're just politically divided and economically. And imagine there was like a third Korea where it was completely controlled by the Japanese, let's say, or something like that, or, or the Chinese or the Americans or the Russians. And that third section had its own country. It's kind of, I didn't know that. Obviously, out of all of them, West Germany was the most successful. They're the ones that won three World Cups in 1954, 1974, and 1990. And in 2014, Germany won its fourth World Cup. And this is kind of this moment was somewhat symbolic because it's the first time Germany has won the World Cup as a, as a united country. So that's that's a big deal. But also, the person who scored the winning goal was not a West. He's not West German. He's not from West Germany. Mario Götze was born in East Germany. So that was also a very big symbol. That was very symbolic. He was the first East German player to score in a World Cup final. And it, it's 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 more symbolism of a united Germany. That this was Germany. All the German hard work has culminated to a 2014 World Cup. And it's kind of sad that after that World Cup, they just collapsed. Not collapsed, but they just start, they're in decline right now. Germany's been pretty disappointing this Euros. They should have been winning more games. They should be at the semifinals at the very least, but... It is what it is. They didn't make it. And there could even be an argument that maybe the Germans do need a superstar. Maybe they do need someone who can carry the team on their back and just, you know, carry them over the line. Who knows? Maybe. You know, maybe they need a new Franz Beckenbauer or a, a Michael Balak of some sort. But that's World Cup success. How about the Euros? Well, obviously, all of them are on our East, our West German success, except for 96. I think that's... Yeah, the the Berlin Wall collapsed in the 90s. and 96, I think Germany was united because the unification of Germany definitely happened before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they won the Euro in 72, in 1980, and then 96. So they've won three Euros already, which is, um, which is surprising. I don't know. If something tells me I thought they would have won a little more. But then again, three is still a lot of wins. So like, I mean, like three Euro wins and four World Cup wins, that's already that's already a good record. So German football is a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I think because the word German is tacked onto it, people may have this preconceived idea or notion of what kind of soccer it might be. Maybe it's like, I think some people might have the impression of it's gray, it's kind of boring, direct, uh, mechanical, industrious. And, but I think industrious is the right word because they do work hard. They, they do plan their game out very well. And for those who don't watch a lot of German soccer, I do suggest you go watch it because it is a lot of fun. And what makes it fun is the fans, German fans seem to be extra crazy, especially especially the Borussia Dortmund fans. But also when you look at German football, they are the they're still among the OGs of world soccer. You have to respect what they do, not just respect, but admire and appreciate because great German players always come out at every generation, every iteration. There's always amazing players that come through. Like uh, Kay Havertz at Bayern Munich, at uh, Chelsea rather. Kay Havertz seems to be very promising and really fun to watch. Serge Gnabry is also fun to watch. Leroy Sané is great to watch. Timo Werner needs to score more goals, but you know that's a problem of its own. But anyway, when you, I'll just say when you think of German football, it's impossible not to think of Bayern Munich. And, but at the same time, you watch German football just to see how does one totally 
dominate and control every outcome of an inherently unpredictable game. That's what makes it fun. How do they? You could see how the Germans approach the game like it's a puzzle. And if you love puzzles, then you will love German football because they treat the game like a puzzle. And the, and once they solve that puzzle, you're gonna see them systemically break down the other team to the point that it's almost demoralizing. Remember, they beat Brazil in Rio de Janeiro in the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, 7-1. They beat Brazil at home 7-1. Only the Germans, I mean, you can argue and, and say that Brazil was just utter garbage. Neymar was injured. Thiago Silva was not in that game. But Brazil, doesn't matter who's starting, they should not be losing 7-1 at home. At least like 2-1 or 3-2. That would be a little more acceptable. But 7-1, it's like, this tells you how good the Germans are when it comes to breaking you down. Anyway, so that's the episode of today. I hope that convinces you to watch more German soccer because I think it's underappreciated by neutrals or not just by neutrals, but by other soccer casual, uh, by casual fans and from soccer fans. I feel like German football is not taken a little more seriously or not appreciated enough. And I think the only other people that might generally enjoy German football are the Italians because Germans and Italians and even the Dutch, they kind of see soccer in a similar way. They love the tactics. But anyway, that's another episode of Soccer Pilgrim. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. As always, don't forget to subscribe to Soccer Pilgrim on any of the podcast streaming platforms on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and so on. You can follow my Instagram at Jason underscore Jisoo. Jisoo spelled G-I-S-O-O. And once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for being an audience. My name is Jason Kim from Montreal. This is Soccer Pilgrim. Thank you.